Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Ricky Lee Jones hit it big with her debut album in 79. The following year, she won the Grammy Award for Best New Artist and over the course of the next four decades, released numerous albums that pulled inspiration from jazz, rock, electronic music, and even musical theater. In late April, Ricky released her latest album, Pieces of Treasure, where she sings songs from the American songbook with a jazz slant. Producer and legendary A&R man Russ Teitelman, who produced Ricky's first two albums, reunited with her on her latest and helped inspire Ricky to find a comfort in her lower vocal register. The result is an oftentimes sultry meditation on aging and survival. On today's episode, Bruce Tedlam talks to Ricky Lee Jones about her decades-long fight to sing jazz, even though she's often viewed as an outsider. She also tells stories about leaving home as a young teenager and the abuse she endured while trying to survive on her own. She plays songs from her career, including one she wrote after seeing John Lennon appear to her in a dream. And just a note before we get started, this episode contains descriptions of sexual abuse and might not be appropriate for all listeners. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum with Ricky Lee Jones. I've always thought of you as someone who, and I thought of this particularly on the new record, uh-huh. you're someone who is acting in the song That's in a strain. Did you always think of yourself as that way? I've just found the, the words to say that, but I've always put the song on mm. and been inside of it. And I know everything about everybody in it. So if I sing something cool... 
I know where she's sitting, what she's wearing, where she bought it, everybody at the bar. I see it all. And I think that's what an actor does. They try to create everything about their character. But it happens to me instantaneously. I have a rich imagination, I guess. And when I sing, the tree instantly grows. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking this year, I'm acting songs. And there's a little difference between singing a song and acting, being a song actor. It suggests somehow that I'm not a real singer, which of course I am a serious singer, but but I think I'm acting. Mm. I'm being the song. It's closer to singers from previous generations were like that, like Peggy Lee mm-hmm. or Julie London. Yes. People like that seem to kind of inhabit songs or become the characters in songs. They were singers, not primarily songwriters, right. although Peggy Lee did write some songs. But you you write them so people think, oh, they must be confessions. They're oh, you yeah. pouring your soul out. Yeah. But you don't really pour your soul no, out on paper. No. I like to write stories. And in the story might be some poignant, unresolved teardrop or something. That's the best way to show it in this way, as any writer does, you know, put their own emotion because that's the only palette we have, right, into what they write. But And that thing, again, of the singer-songwriter versus the singer, how people see them. Because after Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell, it became crucial to be a songwriter. If you weren't a songwriter, then you're not really authentic. If you didn't write that song, then why are you even singing it? Mm-hmm. Kind of attitude. Right. Which I, of course, disagree with. To me, the interpreter, the singer, the bard, is who matters. Yes, yes, I'm glad you wrote the song, but if there's no one to sing it, what does it matter? So Peggy Lee or me or anybody who loves a song and loves to sing and loves to hear other people, you know, whether it's a choir or whatever, loves singing. That's what I like most. And when I had the ear of the press the way I did in the early 80s, I'd talk about Linda Ronstadt, for instance, who was not as in style now for a minute because she wasn't punk rock and she didn't write songs. But I was like, but she's a great singer. And whatever comes into fashion, and I'm glad new things come into fashion, but you can't discard the the meaning of a singer, mm-hmm. I think. Because when you came out, uh, you don't sound like Joni Mitchell. Yeah. But you looked a bit like looked Joni Mitchell. so much like her. So everybody's, oh, she's influenced by Joni Mitchell. And then I'm reading your book, and it's like Jimi Hendrix. It's yeah. West Side Story, which West is a big Side. thing for you. Yeah. And there's a very, I won't give it away, there's a, a very lovely scene <laughs> with that guy. I'll say his name, Tom Waits, the only time I'm going to say it, where you're outside of a, a bar and someone says a line and someone outside else says a line. Outside of the troubadour, yeah. Yeah, and then you all sing it. He gets the line wrong, I think, too. But it's this beautiful <laughs> scene because... And it's real. It really happened. And people grew up, you know, back then, like, people would have records. They might have the Beatles, but then their parents would have South Pacific. Yeah. Or Camelot or something, a sound of music. Everybody had sound of music back then. You said you tended towards Laura Nero. What did you get from her? What was it that 
that drew you? Well, I got that thing of these strange, and I still haven't learned her songs, but these kinds of chords, right? And um, hers are much darker, but... And they probably show up passing in Leonard Bernstein. So that's what she had. She had inversions that were magical to me, and I wanted to know them. She also happened to see her on public television at the same time I heard of her. So to see her is something else entirely. She looked like a terribly mentally ill person who could hardly sit there to perform the song. And as a teenager, I really identified with that part because I felt pretty barely together myself. So I liked that there was somebody there who dared to show herself as she was. Mm -hmm. And she was also very theatrical. Yes, that's a better word. She was creating scenes with her. People know Wedding Bell Blues. That's one of her big songs. But it creates a big... It does. It's like a show number. Something like the one about um, Tomcat Goodbye is like its own piece of theater from top to bottom. So it's a little bit of Gershwin's, a little bit of Porgy and Bess, and then a lot of Motown soul. And she's made her own kind of music. I'm not going to say brand, but she's made her (laughs) own... And, um, you know, I think what I love is the sound of her voice. But that, that, that she did that probably was a map for me, that mm-hmm. I could also make my own room of my own imaginary people. Mm-hmm. What do you think are your songs that, that do that the best? What, yeah. what rooms do you go, I, I got that one? Yeah. The things from Pirates, I would say... Um, Pretty girls go by Nothing here to do anymore So he sits on the stoop all day Like there's something he's waiting for Cunt finger Louie picks up Eddie in the alley He likes to come here with them boys from that town Everybody there looks like Frankie Valley, And they're fluently blonde from her legs to her cigarette. And Louie told Eddie he'd fix him up, but he ain't come back yet. Now, this rhyme, Frankie Valley, I was originally trying to rhyme Eddie Brigatti because Eddie Brigatti's from the uh, Young Rascals. And I loved the Young Rascals, and especially, you know, his How Can I Be Sure. There's that, and I, I like the idea that nobody's written about <laughs> Eddie Brigatti, but I couldn't find anything to rhyme with Gotti. More people would know who Frankie Valley was. It's a very, one of my funny lines. I have a few funny lines, but I always feel like it goes right by people. They're, they're enchanted by the surface. What are you talking about now where everybody looks like Frankie Valley? And then Frankie Valley. Um, more trouble than it's worth. More trouble than it's worth. Oh, why? 
I think. Tell him where you are. And then that one goes there, and there's another verse about the girl, right? So those are the two boys, Eddie and... and uh, oh, and so those characters were inspired by my friend Sal Bernardi's childhood friends in Lodi, New Jersey. He had this one guy... Um, <laughs> so he had Confinger Louie, but the other one was um, the guy with one crazy eye that when he got nervous, it started <laughs> spinning all around. <laughs> so, uh, so I brought his characters in. And then so Zero quit school. She lost her job again. And her boyfriend beat her up and he won't let her in. She's walking by this joint in her black and blue dress. She looks at Louie and he says, don't tell me, let me guess. It's more trouble than it's worth. He's more trouble than it's worth. Oh, why? Remember when you're in a movie and the newspapers go by and, <laughs> and they're spinning by yeah. and it's the exciting night? That's what that was. A little lonely, a little sad, a little mean. But 
remember this place, inside this hotel. You could do anything you want. You could never tell. It's more trouble than it's worth. More trouble than it's worth. darker part of the city this this one sets them free to, to go mm-hmm. somewhere else I always I don't always but for a long time I felt it's a conversation we have when we're lucky enough to be writers of songs that people hear and sing we're all talking to one another and responding to one another it's just a lie to pretend that you live in a vacuum and, and everything comes out of your own head and if you're not being honest about it, then you're you're a thief and you're and you're stealing stuff. So we must learn from one another, and and it has to be okay to say I learned from somebody else, and and then I made up my own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. You know, one of the things about that song you just played, you're constantly changing tempos. Yeah, yeah. You know, you stop the whole band in the middle, and then it starts back up again. Where does that come from? Is that from musicals as well? Yeah, maybe so. I've always liked things that changed directions and changed, and they did it in the pop stuff for a while, right? Uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It was exciting, but probably musical theater does it first. Can you tell me about Away from the Sky? That was uh, inspired by uh, the death of John Lennon. Oh. A dream I had about John Lennon. I feel pretty strong today, so I can probably talk about it. But sometimes if I just talk about sad stuff, it's overwhelming. But not that long after he died, I dreamed of him. I've never been there, but on a British seashore, riding his bike with a stocking cap. And in, like, the three bears in back of him was Yoko, and in back of her was Sean, each on his little bike. And there was a pier, and as he turned to go onto the pier, he looked at me. John is looking at me, John <laughs> And he sang this. Let's see. There was a crooked man who lived on a crooked shore, but now he'll never have to go away anymore. Oh, away from the sky. Away from the sky and turned onto the pier and they followed him. Really? When I woke up, because sometimes those things dissolve instantly, I don't know why, but that part never made it into the recording. I saved the, the real part he sang for myself and I made up a song based on a Dylan Thomas short story called After the Fair. 
you know, the thing on the record is is my demo, so I'm just going boom, doom, doom, just like it's as minimal as it can be, and then and and because uh, I, I was probably half writing it as I recorded it. For all that it cost him, he never did complain. The chicken-headed man there, feathering the rain. But the last bus is tired, everybody's gone. The horses are painted with the waiting of the lawn. Go up from the rodeo Go up from the tundra gal It's after the fair That's when I See you She sleeps in the canvas The fat man hollers Ooh. Tender is the night I feel bleeding out of you So come into my trailer We can toast a little bread Now look, you left a hole you laid on my bed He said But you keep what you can keep And when you dive into the deep There's year after frozen year That's where I Saved you there oh, oh, Away from the sky Oh Away from the sky There you go, little gal, there you go 
That was Ricky Lee Jones performing her song, Away From The Sky. We have to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more from Bruce Hedlum and Ricky Lee Jones. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more from Ricky Lee Jones. It's interesting because you know, I reread your your autobiography and now you moved so much when you were a kid. Yes. It seemed that you were always having to reintroduce yourself or introduce yourself. That's right. Although you always did it, it seemed to fill you with terror, the yes, idea that you would. Yes. And that terror of people, basic mistrust and expectation that at some point they'll do their worst stayed with me. Mm-hmm. The playground seems to be ever with us, or I, I could just say with me, but it does seem like that that scenario is playing out over and over again of a bully, kids who want to follow the bully just so they don't get picked on, a couple kids who are, one's different or one's just poor, or it's always the same dynamic of who's on top and who's underneath. And and I think the fact that I was a little different, though I didn't think so, but I think I must have been, gave me someone to be so that I wasn't anonymous. Because I guess more than I hated being picked on, I hated being invisible. Mm. So I w- accepted that but I really never understood why. I'd look in the mirror and go, aren't I pretty? Why Why don't they like me? And it's still a mystery to me. <laughs> really? Yes. You know, later in your book, you're very critical of what was sort of late-stage hippies, sort of the people you hung around with. Mm-hmm. It seemed that when you were traveling, and, and you started traveling, I think, at 14, didn't mm-hmm. you? Just hitchhiking. Hitchhiking yeah. and... You know, you lived in a cave for a while. Uh, There were other people in the cave, too, but it was still a cave. (laughs) You know, it seemed that, you know, particularly a lot of the men you met were very... Uh, The usury. They're very predatory. And they were were the hippies. They were... They talked a good game. But a lot of them were very abusive. Well, I was really young, and Mm -hmm. I believed what I read, my impressions of what it would be like to be a grown-up in that world, to be an active member of their idea of what life should be like. But those people were just greasers (laughs) a little (laughs) bit older, right? (laughs) They were just the tough kids at school in 1962 or whoever they were. I I saw them as magically appearing with long hair like Christ. And so, you know, I, I was definitely needed a place to stay and needed something to eat. And the cost of that was my body. And, Mm. um, you know, that was very hard to, Sometimes I just wanted to be able to rest and and not have to struggle with some guy. Would he relent and not try to put his dick in me, or or would that be the cost of of having a, a night of food? I have never actually said that so starkly and truly because it it was so hard and a little kid, you know, and then getting up 
the next day, if you're lucky if it's the next day, and they and they don't want you there anymore. And I think every single guy I met, I thought, will he marry me? Is he the one who loved me? Every one of them. And so that, so that was lots of disappointments. But I've you know, have many years to think about it and thought I was really just a very little kid in a woman's body in a costume that looked like old enough for them. I think some of them would have withdrawn if they knew my true age, but most of them, no. I think it was kind of cool, right, to to be attracted to a young teenager. They still sell that image a lot, schoolgirl. Like, uh, uh, hit me, baby, one more time. Britney Spears. Yeah. She's, yeah. She sold that image as well. So as long as we let that image be sold, and you know, that stuff is going on in reality. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about a nice guy. Yes, that's... <laughs> your producer on this project, yeah. Russ Teitelman, who was one of your first producers. Yeah, my first. Your first? He was your first... Pro- I had two producers, Lenny Warrenker and Russ Teitelman. And I'd seen Lenny... I didn't know from producers, but I saw Lenny's name on the back of a Randy Newman record. It was about two years, maybe, before I got signed. Most people would have wanted to meet Randy Newman. Ah, no. You you went into the small type. (laughs) That's right. I've always known that's the way in. You Mm. can't go for the big big thing because everybody wants to meet Randy. But if you find... I was an infamous... Get her in backstage, girl, and I'd I'd watch the secret way that nobody was going, and just slip in that way. So that was the same philosophy of how to get in. So anyway, his name, and so we sent tapes around to three or four people. He got one of them, and the, and I was exactly right. He was the way. And um, I pushed, you know, when the record companies went to sign me. This little, I think it was called Portrait or something, this little company made the best offer. And we went back to Warner Brothers. My lawyer, a big shot working for free, we talked him into, I'm going to be a big (laughs) shot, and said, you know, she wants to go with Lindy, so if you'll meet the offer, I don't know if that's okay to tell that story, but if you'll meet the offer... We'll come with you. And that happened exactly as it was meant to. So Lenny sent the tape to Russ because they were partners in production. Russ was working with George Harrison in England. And he tells this story a lot now now that we're reunited. So when he heard uh, company, he called Lenny and said, this girl is a singer. She's like Roberta Flock, which is a pretty big compliment. And um, Lenny said, oh, I hadn't really noticed. I was listening to the songs. So they were perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Him addressing the songs. We got to put an accordion on the, on the bridge because the Italians are there. And him addressing the singer. You got to go sing that line again. So it was good. Yeah, It's hard to imagine now just what a incredible... Oh period that was for you. You'd only been writing songs for, what, a couple of years, yes. maybe. You were living in L.A. I was homeless in the months before I was signed. Mm-hmm. 
just tumbled into having nowhere to go. What was it like? Suddenly these record companies are bidding for you. Yeah. It felt as if it was always supposed to be that way. Did you always think that growing up, that this was going to happen? No. But I always felt that I was going somewhere special. I always felt like I was always talking to the invisible world, and God's camera is right about here, so all you got to do is look up and say, So it's hard to explain what I always thought, but I feel a constant connection to something that that almost has no words, but is ever-present in here. But I can't say that I did, you know. My life was troubled and going nowhere. I didn't have any skills. I'd quit high school. But I had this, when I sang, it was all that I am. Anything I sang was totally emotional. And and then I got this job as a singing waitress, and everybody else was so much louder than me. I thought, I'm going to have to learn how to sing louder, or I'm never going to get a job. So I taught myself. Uh, there was a book, and I put my hands on my chest and um, found a way to put that sound in the bones and practice, and that was the that was the first, you know, because I always thought I was a great singer. But the fact was, I was, I could be a great singer, but it wasn't. So I taught myself to be a better singer. As soon as I did that, within a year, it presented itself to me. It was just life presented itself to me. Did you not know you wanted to be a singer before that? What what made you finally focus on that? You know, since I was 16, I'd been practicing, you know, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes and and singing and playing with my girlfriend, Julie, and playing everywhere. But when I was on my own and got to L.A., it seemed like that will never happen. It's a town full of people trying to do it. And you're so weird. You're not like Joni Mitchell. You can't sing like Joan Baez. You're so weird right? Because you're different. And so somebody will come. They might not all, but uh, somebody will come because you're different. They'll like that about you. And I had this natural thing for jazz. My father sang jazz, and his father was a vaudevillian. And I began to, you know, what I know how to do is my funny valentine. And so I started singing the jazz ballads in Venice, and when and nobody was doing it, so that felt powerful. I have something that's just mine, and I did it really well. And and the local snooty musicians suddenly were like, "We like you. Come and sit in with us again." So I started to feel like I had a possibility at an identity. And then in a short time, I had my own. Friday night gig at a bar. And then a short time later, I was making a demo for a record company. So once I set aside doubt, and my mother said, I would say, Mom, I'm going to go to school and be a stenographer. I've only got to go 18 months, and I'll have a job. She said, but I thought you wanted to be a singer. Imagine. Mm. And I said, I did, but I I just can't see how that would ever happen. And she said, don't you give up on your dreams. Interesting, because your mother had had a very tough life. Very tough. She'd been an orphan. Yeah. 
your father lost his mother very young as well. Yeah, so they're right. both... They had that in common. And she seemed to live a very controlled life. That's she had to right. Keep, she had to keep things... She kept things together. Um, ...for other people. Um, it's interesting that she was the one who said to you, I thought you wanted to be a singer. I know. It was almost divine. Like the other voice said, we got to speak through Betty right now or she's going to give up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give up on your dreams. Yeah, it was unexpected and so heartfelt that I, I thought, my mother is invested in me trying with all my might to make a dream come true. And it almost seemed like it was more she wanted me to try, but I thought, maybe she thinks I can do it too. She's not here. She doesn't see what's happening, but she believes me. When you got into the studio right. for the first time, you played with bands. And you had fabulous players. I did. I you had Steve Gadd. Andy Newmark, Willie Weeks, the incredible Victor Feldman, who's, who was in Miles Davis's band and did all that Steely Dan work. So one, one of the things about when you're with the top-tier players is they're very kind. It's the, mm. it's the other ones that jab you a little bit. But the best players are, are very kind, and they love making music. And so I couldn't write it, but I could sing it all. So I sang all the horn parts, and somebody wrote them down, and they played them. And they were exactly how I thought they would sound mm -hmm. in my head. But the other aspects of recording, like Chucky's in Love and stuff, as it manifested into the physical world, it wasn't at all what I... I only ever heard my voice and mm -hmm. me, <laughs> so... So the producers endeavored to bring to reality whatever feeling they thought I had and their own, you know, how to, how to make a good record. I think their choices were always much cleaner, tamer, precise than I might have gone. And I'm glad, you know, and I'm known people like this about me best, I think than the more raggedy stuff. But they took me out gently, <laughs> took out <laughs> my guitar playing, and put in Buzzy Beaton. So. so what was that like, that incredible year you're signed, you make this record with mm -hmm. these amazing players, you're on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. You argue with them on Saturday Night Live, <laughs> which I thought was pretty gutsy. Yeah. They wanted you to do one song. You wanted to do Coolsville. I did. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that Saturday Night Live. Everybody does. It was yeah. a you were suddenly huge. Yeah. And you had a check for fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> That's right. That's what right. was what was the first thing you bought with that? Probably, you know, dinner. First of all, I had nowhere to put it. I didn't have a bank account. So when I got that check, I still had to borrow some money from Lenny because <laughs> I didn't have a cash. And really, I didn't know how anything worked. I didn't know how to have a bank account or how to tip. Or... So what was that like? You know, it's almost like the whole life <gasps> was holding its breath. So for a, for a little while, everything was just shimmering and still and right. That's what it was like, I think. Mm -hmm. But you beat the second album, Curse. I did. You did Pirates. I meant to, too. Really? Know? Were you yeah. that? You're like... I was well aware of it. And I had met Bette Midler at a dinner 
Was this before your record? Or? Yeah, before the first oh, record. Okay. So, because you thought about she said, "Let her. me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to put this one out, and if it doesn't do horrible, they'll pick up your second one, and not till your third record will you have any kind of acclaim or success." And that was kind of what happened to most people. And that was, I thought, nah, we'll see. I think my first record's probably going to do pretty good. So when we had the big success, so big. Bigger than anything. Hard to find a woman who had had that kind of success coming out the gate. Though, you know, they probably weren't tallying it up in the 60s in exactly the same way. But it was it was a very big thing. And it was a crossover kind of thing. And culturally, I got to expand the idea. You know, I was a singer-songwriter, but I wasn't a folky. And, and mm-hmm. these things sound small now, but they were big, making people accept that it works, it, it'll make everybody money, and it's different than what was before. So uh, I know I can't match this record in any way. I'm not the same person. I'm not as happy. And those are a lot of beautiful, happy songs. And I'm not on this side of the mountain anymore. So from the other side of the mountain, I will draw the picture of what I see fiercely. And, and I won't give one eyelash to the idea of a song that you'll play on the radio. And so a little bit of it is defiance. And that's okay. You can't help but not respond to what's happening I, I, you know, if, if, if that hadn't happened, what would I have written? I don't know. But so what I wrote was um, what was happening to me. And I think that the incredible thing that happens with the recording is it captures more than the song itself. It captures your intention and it captures your spirit. That's the inexplicable thing about a great record is it has spirit and people a lot, uh, put it on the list of their important records. I personally think the first record is important, but I don't exactly know why Pirates matters more. I'm guessing people who put it on their favorite list don't know it was the second record, so they don't know it's overcoming expectations. But I like it. It's dreamy. It's remarkable in its musicality and sophistication for a girl who who had no education. But I like a song I can sing. Like I was saying, I like a melody that you remember. I don't know if anybody can sing the traces of the Western slopes, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to insult myself, but but I'm I'm glad that it that it hit with people. But then then the curse probably came some years later. I took a long time to make the third record. It was 1984, I think. Mm-hmm. So I had gone in and out of heroin addiction, and. A couple of times I had drunk on stage, not many, but the times I did, there was a big full-length photograph in a newspaper, and and the promoters, uh, the the promoters' union, <laughs> 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 exiled me from many stages. Guys did much worse, but I think that there was an expectation 
of proper, pristine behavior from me because of the quality of the work. We don't like our girls to behave badly, and they want to think of of a woman as a tragic falling figure. And so many people want to disrespect anybody instead of loving, forgiving, spreading that goodwill. So I was in a really defensive posture when I did the magazine. I was off drugs, and I wanted everybody to know it. And I did a cover looking really <laughs> off drugs, and everybody yeah, should very healthy. Yeah, very yeah. healthy. And yeah. I, was, I was super healthy, but... I'd spent some time in France, and I was leaning towards a more classical kind of music now. I'd heard Eric Satie, and and it was expanding in in another way. So these are weird. This was the one album I wrote that I, I wanted to do theater with it. So this was the direction I would have liked to have grown in in some version of my life to write for theater and act. But at that point, I seemed to be just collapsing emotionally. The the broken love affairs, the trail of dead, and the very beginning of living with Tom Waits for the rest of my life because nobody would stop asking me about him in every interview. Mm. Aside from that, it was kind of emotional. It's like, but aren't I a musician? Do you have no respect or interest in, in the person who's sitting in front of you now. If you want to talk to Tom, the phone over there, call him. But mm-hmm. why do you want to talk to me about that? So, you know, there were years where I was resentful and angry and tell them if they mention it, they'll be escorted out and all these things. <laughs> So finally, uh, I don't know, in the last 10 years, I went, isn't that wonderful? We have lived together all our lives. That brief time, that beautiful time, was so remarkable to audiences and so enchanting. We looked like we belonged together, that song, and they won't let it go. Isn't that wonderful? And would have liked to have had some peace with him, but that did not and would never happen. And that was that was turned out to be just as hard as living with the questions, you know, twenty years ago. But now I'm. You mean living with the with the unresolved? Yeah, and also the pain of this breakup was really hard. But to be reminded by every passing stranger who comes to talk, especially in Europe, they really want to know. Mm-hmm. Poke at it all the time. Mm-hmm. And did you think that your persona became the kind of spurned woman or is that the role yes. people put you in? I bet you. Yeah. Yes. Spurned woman, that would be an assumption. That, that Sure. <laughs> so, but... Then, when he became very popular, when the, then it was more like, we want to touch you because you're part of the purple of, of uh, Tom Waits, the, the purple cloth. So at that point is where that would probably happen. Mm. Uh, no offense to Tom Waits. He's never been as popular as you were, though. Oh, so much more. Sells so many more tickets. You know, I see him as more popular than Bob Dylan, you know. Mm. There are so many people copying his style. I'm just like in awe. How did 
<laughs> How did that happen? That's that's what I saw. You didn't see that? Never had an album that was as big as your first couple albums. But I think some cultural thing. I remember the guy in Nine Inch Nails talking about him when my daughter was so probably 95 or 96. And he, that was when he seemed to take on this other alternative world status of, of a golden god. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the women who had touched him. Yeah. And that was the hardest part. That was the hardest time in the 90s when people were like, we don't even know Averin, but you were Tom Waits' girlfriend and that we want to talk about. Whereas before, it was like, we love your music and you talk to us about your broken heart. But now I go, look... It's part of the legend of human beings, and when we're gone, we'll still be there together. We're one of the lovers. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Come on, you gotta love that. We'll be back after another quick break with more from Bruce Hedlum and Ricky Lee Jones. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with the rest of Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Ricky Lee Jones. Can we talk about a couple of your songs? Let's well, you mentioned sure. Company, that that was the song okay. that 
Was that Russ that liked company or was that? That was Russ. Russ. What did he tell you he heard in that? (laughs) He said that Lenny sent this cassette to him, which was the demo I made at Warner Brothers, you know, to entice him to co-produce. Because like I said, I went with Warner Brothers if Lenny would produce me. So he said, he, you know, he heard the first couple of songs. Chuck is in Love, my dad's song, The Moon is Made of Gold. One that didn't get on the record called The Real Things Back in Town. And then Company, which I wrote with my, the only co-writer I think I've really had, which who is Alfred Johnson. He and I wrote that song one night together. The story of writing company was, so I, I had a job briefly working for this gangster named Rocky Miller. Rocky was a real gangster, and, he, and he'd show me his money in his sock, and he wore garters, stays, I guess they were called, I think, and uh, he was a real creep. And he'd make me sit on his lap, He'd call me into the office and say, come over here. And I'd go, I don't want to come over there. He said, come over here, I'll fire you. And uh, so I'd sit on his lap like an angry teenager, which is all you can do in 1978. And that was the terrible part of the job. But the great part was that I had access to a typewriter all day long. Mm -hmm. And when I had a typewriter... Another kind of, you know, it was like (laughs) heaven. Another kind of lyric came out. And so I sat there and wrote the lyrics to Youngblood and Company and um, the beginnings of something else. So I have my little notebook and files full of lyric ideas. And I met Alfred on the beach in Venice. He was playing some uh, Little Feet, maybe. I was standing there listening to him, and I'll sing a little bit. I was singing with him, and he looked at me kind of, and he said, and so I said, do you know any Laura Nero? And little stars floated out of his eyes. And then he invited me over to his house, and I said, okay. And I got in between him and his friend, and we drove a mile down to Culver City. And then we went into his house, which just like I stayed now in this motel right by where his house was. And as we walked in the door, there were dismembered dolls everywhere, dolls hanging from things and heads here. And right away I went, oh, cool. And it was like I passed the test with them because I, I you ha- you had to decide right away, are you dead or is this some kind of goofy art installation? Mm-hmm. And there were two men, you know, so, but I was pretty sure he was a kind of odd musician. And um, right away we had this powerful language together. And then a, a few weeks later we wrote company together which was kind of like having a love affair. By the end of the night, we were done. But we wrote every single bar entwined together. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful, odd lyric, you know, when I reach across the galaxy, I'll miss your company. And in that way, it was a little different than than a regular uh, 
You're Leaving Me song. Mm-hmm. That's one of the only straight-ahead lyrics I, I wrote about you and what you're doing and how I feel. Mm-hmm. Normally, I, I would have made up some guy, somebody's name, and how she feels. It, it has an old-fashioned quality, though. It, it has an sure old does. song book quality for that At reason. At that time, we, you know, I, I, we were writing, thinking maybe we'd get these songs to famous people. Chucky's in Love was kind of aimed at Bette Midler, and Company was aimed at Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. And when I got signed, I told uh, Mo Austin, who was a good friend when I was uh, there, and Lenny, would you take this to Frank? Because they'd fly over to the desert for these meetings, you know. So they, they said, we're taking it to Frank. And then they didn't tell me how the meeting <laughs> went. So what happened? Is he going to do it? And they said, you don't want him to do it. One said, he can't hit those notes anymore. I didn't know if I should say this in the, on there, but the other one said, and anyway, he wants a publishing for anything he does. So I don't know if you want him. He, he won't even consider doing it unless he has the publishing. Is that right? Yeah. Well, okay. that's what they said. Okay, because I guess he had his own writers at Anybody, that Anybody, you know, it's it's greed, yes. But when you're that powerful, if he records the song, the world will hear it. Yes. So what is a publisher anyway? They're the guy who's supposed to bring the song to the world. And they should get their half of the penny if they do that job. We folkies bought our own publishing, but uh, but also <laughs> didn't take our songs anybody. So, you know, everybody had said, you must keep your publishing. As you age, it's going to be the only way you keep making money. And, of course, they were right. But I probably, you know, with Alfred's permission, would have given up the publishing on that if Frank... Right. I mean, at, at, at least it seems from here that I might have. Now, were you always a fan? Of Frank? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, always. My father was a singer. The timber and style of him is like the Mills Brothers and Frank Sinatra. Mm. And um, my mom had a you know schoolgirl crush on him. So he, more than any other singer, felt like he was telling my story when he sang any woman, anybody, until I heard the Beatles, whose collective harmony was otherworldly to me. But those were my two main guardian angels initially. Mm-hmm. And then it you know, expanded. You know, throughout your career, you've done cover records. Uh, you tend not to mix them with originals. Yeah. You've done Rebel Rebel. You did yeah. For No One. <laughs> so tell me about this album, how it came about. <laughs> yes. Why these songs? And is there a story you're telling with these songs? There's not a story I'm telling with them. They were picked because I could sing them well. And I wanted people to know I was a jazz singer. But there was a journalist a couple weeks. This is important to me because I hadn't really gotten this feedback so clearly. There was a journalist a couple weeks ago who said, I saw you in Cleveland in 1979, and you opened with Chucky's in Love. And we were going, what is she got to do now? (laughs) (laughs) And then you introduced us to Dinah Washington and Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughn. And I was like, there it is, what I waited all my life to hear and heard it here or there. So that's just important that, that long ago in the long ago history, I was singing it, peers were loving it. 
But the jazz world said, you are not allowed in here. You cannot enter. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel that? You betcha. Early in your career? Um, Was it things people said career. or just... And I've figured out, I think partially, you know, because there are unusual... First of all, women are, are the last person allowed in the room. Singers and women singers. But... If you didn't only sing jazz, you can't come in. If you sang a pop song, you can't come in. You have to have exclusively devoted yourself to this uh, one discipline, or you can't come in. I called the jazz station in Long Beach 10 years ago. I said, would you play Rick Lee Jones? Hi, Lily, hi, Lily. He said, no, we don't play Rick Lee Jones. Okay. Is that like on the wall behind it? We don't play regularly. Your picture with a big X. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it hurt. It, it always hurts to have people go, yeah, we've decided what you are, no matter what you do. So uh, I did jazzy songs with some pop in them. I, I always mixed it up a little bit. And um, after Pop Pop, which got a really weird reviews, you know. It was my 40th birthday, and one of the great bebop players, Joe Henderson, had played on two songs. He came to the party and at a moment took me aside and said, I just wanted to tell you that I was sorry to see that you didn't make another record because I really thought you were on to something. And it was a revelation, because this is from a musician, and you're listening to critics. Stop it. <laughs> so it took a long time, and for whatever reason, I found myself thinking about Russ and that I need to be in the loving care of a real producer who not only knows what they're doing, but loves the sound of my voice. And, and I looked him up, I was thinking we would um, maybe work on some of my new material, but he said, I want to do a jazz. I want to do a jazz record. You have not done the American Songbook. That's what we're going to do. And so I said, okay. <laughs> and um, we began to exchange ideas. But what happened was um, I knew in the last two years that my voice has begun to change a little because of aging, not a lot. And I don't smoke and I take good care of it, but it was thinning here and tired there. And jazz is the most demanding, I think, because you can, in other things, you can yell, you can put that up in the back of the throat and hit anything, but if you're going to do quiet stuff. What seemed to happen when I started is this, this other quietude that was a little bit, you know, saucy and sensual. She just stepped right up to the microphone and she knew just what she was doing. I was like, who is this? I love her voice. It's got a lower thing, but right away I heard the command that I prayed I'd have and didn't expect, and there it was. It was it, so we made an extraordinary record that's kind of magic. We went full circle back 
to the time we left off our professional relationship at Pirates. Uh, it's not like Pirates, but something in the power of what happens when we work together was there. I think it stands well next to any beloved vocal work from the 50s or 60s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So because there's a feeling of sensual love and humor and all the things that you can get if you survive. I'm 69 this year. If you survive, you can bring all this stuff to your life and then bring it to the sound of your voice and to music. And I think um, that's what's there is humor and the love of life and and the idea that we're singing, you know, not for ourselves anymore. We're not going to be here to, you know, and maybe I will, but but I'm singing now for others and reaching out. Right. That's a great place to stop. Thank you so much. That was just wonderful. Thanks to Ricky Lee Jones for playing and reminiscing about her career with Bruce Hedlund. You can hear all of our favorite Ricky Lee Jones songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Nisha Venkut, Jordan McMillan, and Eric Sandler. Our editor is Sophie Crane. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription service that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for only $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about 
calling because I was like, this is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.